lights are blinking You're getting pretty stinking At the office Christmas party on the Nog Told the boss to suck it merrily Then kissed your secretarily She slapped your face and left the room agog I picked a fight with Todd from shipping Then you started stripping Off your pants down to your red and green G-string You barfed in your new briefcase On the client database You're really cruising now Hi, welcome to Cinemad. I'm sitting here with Toby Huss, and this is why I like doing the intro, because I'll always forget something cool, so you add something cool. Okay. I forget it. <clears throat> so, All right. Adventures of Pete and Pete, people may know you from. Yeah, that was a cool thing. King of the Hill, you've yeah. done quite a few voices on. Yeah. And then people who really pay attention in Los Angeles, the Rudy Cassone variety show. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's Three it. Is that it? Three things. <laughs> this is going to be. We don't got to feel an hour, do we? This we can we can this do can this in ten minutes, right? Right. <laughs> Thank God. Because that's what it's going to be. But I think this is definitely the first time I've talked to someone who works with microphones more or less for a living. I, uh, yeah, you know. I, I mean, do do you think is there a term voice actor, something like that? I don't know. I guess. I think that. Yeah, but there's, you know, I, I just do too much weird shit. I don't know. I mean, I... There's yeah. Not to... So... Not, well, we'll get, and later I, on, we'll get on to the other things you do that yeah. don't make money. But what... Oh, yeah. Which is most of it. Which is most <laughs> of the canon. No, but there's, but I see guys that... Uh, at I have, like, a voiceover agent. And it's funny, because, mm-hmm. you know, you would think after... I did Beavis and Butthead, too, when that was going on. And, and King of the Hill for a bunch of years. And you think, well, that, that guy's got a... That's uh, how he can. He's like he's you know he can make his living doing that. Yeah, like no. Elmer J. Fudd, like I a mansion in, in a yacht. Yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't work like that. I, I go into the voiceover agents and they give a copy of something, and I go in and I do my take on it. I can see the lady in the booth kind of blink and like the fuck is. And I try to to sort of ape what I think a guy should be doing in that point, but I don't I don't know if it works. But then I see guys who are out there and they're going through the same copy as I am. They have a piece of paper in their hands. Right. And they're going through they're doing the thing of the thing. And then I come up and I and I just you know, if they have a and, and also if they have little squirrely voices to do, they go, hey, you know, and these guys wake up in the morning and they love fucking doing squirrely voices. I, I don't want to do squirrely voices. I don't like to do them. I don't want to be in a cartoon and go gaggle 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 gaggle. It's fucking awful. <laughs> to f- I'm a fucking grown man, but some people love that shit, and I'm not one of them. So hence, I don't hardly get any fucking work. You know, what was, what was I don't it? yell like an Asian guy, but the fuck. Yeah, you're more in the racist category occasionally. Yeah, yeah. and now you know, I was mentioning Phil Hendry earlier. Phil Hendry and I had to play two guys on King of the Hill at a at a barbecue place, and they just had like two lines apiece, uh-huh. and. Uh, or Phil's guy was talking like that, you know, kind of a black dude like that. And my guy that I was doing was crazy. And they wouldn't let either. They said, you know, you guys, and then let's try another take. And you guys just kind of dial it down. Yeah, we're going to have to dial that down. Yeah. And uh, no, no, don't, no, it's not going to And And I did from, from uh, Greg Daniels one time, though. He, I was doing a, a gay character on King of the Hill, and we tried it, and it was it was kind of gay, but it wasn't it wasn't I didn't think it was over the top, but it was definitely, you know, sort of queenie on the queenie edge. And Greg was looking, and he goes, you know, I he said, let's do another take, Toby. And I never thought I'd say this, but uh, 
can you uh, make it less gay? <laughs> I don't. I don't think I've ever asked that of anybody. <laughs> but yeah, less gay. Uh, oh, okay. And then I also was doing one stupid voice of some guy, and he went, um, "Can you make it sound less like a bear?" <laughs> but you were playing a person. I was playing a human, sort of a big human and talking. So he went, "Yeah, that yeah. was." It was sort of. It was a sort of a big human. That kind of that kind of a thing. And That's he went, jungle nah, you make it less sound like a bear." <laughs> that was a bear voice. I didn't know. I'm. I'm just. I think I'm just not talented in that. I think that's part of the problem that I don't like doing squirrely voices, and I don't know. Did you? What was the first gig doing a voice? Beavis and Butthead. I met Mike Judge at a party in New York, and I was doing MTV promos back in the mid '90s, and uh-huh. he had just started this Beavis and Butthead show, and no one really knew what it was. And he went, we were talking and goofing on some. You know, I'm from Iowa, and he's from you know Texas and Mexico, and said just goofing on rednecks that we knew and and white mm-hmm. trash dudes and laughing at him because there's certain sort of regular white trash types and he was talking about a boomhauer type guy you know that guy and i went oh i knew this welder yeah there's a guy named wayne from kentucky uh-huh. i was talking to this and you go wait wayne i i, I didn't oh, i didn't I was, I was doing construction i i don't understand you wayne oh, I'll, I'll tell you i'll get it on a ranch Oh Wayne, I didn't. God damn it, get in the motherfucking wrench. You want a you want a wrench? Okay, I didn't. And so, and Mike said, "Yeah, we'll come over and do this show if you want to." And I, all right. So I think you got it was like three hundred bucks, and they just gave you a pile of scripts. All right, do a race car driver, two lines there. Okay, this episode you're a janitor and a lumberjack. All right, and then do some, and you'd show up at you know noon with your hangover and work for three hours and. Uh, right. Go get a couple beers, and that was a uh, good New York time. But that was the first mm. voiceover thing. I did an episode of uh, Prey Home Companion, though. I think it was my first. Really? Then the. Yeah, but it was. I did Sinatra singing about the closing of the uh, or the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. That's how old it was. It was like '89. Wow. When he was in when Garrison was in New York. Uh, Just kind of. That was more microphone work. Yeah, you're right. Lots of microphone work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And and uh, uh, but so growing up in Iowa, you, uh, there's like, I mean that's this isn't a goal, voice actor, like what what kind of stuff were you doing growing no, up? No, you know I was in ju- I I did a thing in Junior Achievement Radio. This guy I forget the guy's name, but we had KFJB was our radio station in Marshalltown where I'm from, the town of like whatever twenty five thousand people or something, and uh, mm-hmm. we had two radios KFJB and the other one. KR, whatever, something else came later. But KFJB was the one radio station in town, and they had a rock, and we did this Junior Achievement radio station thing, Junior Achievement, <laughs> trying to get poor these poor schmoes, <laughs> friends of my parents, trying, okay, you like to buy some stock, and we're, ready, we're having it, if you'd like to stop, we'll sell, oh, fucking, I hated it. <laughs> but Kirsten Tassler was in it, and she was, oh, my God. M- moved yeah. into town. I think her parents were military or something, but there was no military base in Marshalltown. But she was mm-hmm. gorgeous. That's very sexy, very luring. It was a sexy time in the early '80s. But she was in the radio. She was in the Ray Junior Achievement Radio Show, and we were talking about this. And I was playing like punk rock, and in, in you know '82 or something, or 1980, '81 on the radio. And we had a little half an hour show at night. And I was playing the Buzzcocks and, you know, the Dead Kennedys and the Dickies. And not Dead Ken- Yeah, it was like Dead Kennedy Ramones and stuff. And, yeah. and uh, the Jam and Sham 69. And, and uh, 
and you know, and, the, and I get done with a, a couple songs, and I go, "Oh, that was the Dickies," and and then uh, that um, uh, that was uh, Sham '69, and and then <laughs> and there was another. The other I played the undertones after that. My my perfect cousin. That was from the record they did, and and then I didn't have my friends. The guy went. And so then they play some more music, and 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 the DJ guy, you know, Ken or something, said, "Toby, you know what you got to do? I mean, you really got to use your voice in this." And he was a, he was a DJ guy, and he said, "Toby, you got to use your voice. You got to really try." Now, uh, when I do the station ID, I don't just go KFJB Marshalltown. You, you seem to, and I did. I went, I went this this thing to KFJB in Marshalltown. I mean, it wasn't retarded, <laughs> but very close to being retarded. And he said, you know, try something like this. So, like, the jam uh, uh, in the city stops playing, and he goes, and that was uh, the jam within the city at KFJB, Marshalltown. <laughs> I went, oh, my God, it was fantastic. It was clowny, but KFJB, Marshalltown. <laughs> oh, just. <laughs> That's the cat. <laughs> but that KFJB, Marshalltown was. That's, yeah. That was my introduction into performance style it's pretty late that's especially college radio hopefully it still has the effect i don't know if it does in a big city and radio of course has gone <clears throat> bad in the last 10 years yeah least. but like uh same thing growing up small town in colorado in the 80s and the local junior college just playing the songs first off a radio station playing the songs you wanted to hear punk yeah. rock and yeah. metal and just like they just you know yeah they just played the bus cocks and yeah. all the crew and everybody's yeah. like, who is this guy? But then I loved that possibility of you can call up that kid who's over there. Yeah. Me being, you know, 12 or 13 and like calling him up and then just, you know, whatever. He's just a cool kid who's like yeah. 18 or 19. He's like, uh-huh. hey, man, yeah, man, yeah. can't wait to get out of this town. You, know? <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. you too? Yeah. You know? And what town was it? Magic, a Grand Junction. Like so, Grand Junction, probably same size farmers, same sort of thing. But you could still have that little that little magic because people aren't making now. I guess it's maybe it's people making indie films in these little towns because everybody can do that with a video camera. Yeah, the radio is a really interesting thing. But then now you're doing this. Are you doing theater? Are you doing comedy? Are you just dicking around in class? What then? Yeah. Then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think now, I was doing now like little. Yeah. Now I am then. Yeah. I mean, then I was doing that, and I was doing a couple little plays in school, and then. But mainly dicking around with your friends, I think most of it came from dicking around with your friends. And most like, you know, yeah, just dicking around with friends and doing, you know, you, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a guy that lives down the street who's got a hair lip and everybody tries to do his voice and then you can do his voice pretty well and they go, hey, that was really good. And you sort of get it, oh yeah, I can do that hair lip, Mr. Henderson, pretty well. And just okay, let's say that that was good. So now to do, and then I, maybe you get reinforced for that sort of stuff, and you like you like that, and you sort of point your boat in that direction. Then for a while, I think. Right, just being kids are mean. No yeah. way around it. You learn how to like, you know, you feel bad. Well, hopefully you feel bad once in a while, but then once you learn, you can do money doing it. Yeah. Things probably change. Yeah, a that's bit. weird. Yeah. Yeah, my daughter did a. She's thirteen, and she did like a. A Chinese voice the other day that was pretty good, but pretty inappropriate. And I, you know, right. I did con for a hundred years, and I went, "Well, well, hey, hey, maybe not a, 
Not at the store. You shouldn't do the, oh, that's crazy. No, hold, hold on, kid. Hold on. No, I don't. Because you don't want to squash your creativity, but you got to give her some rules. You know? But then I'm not, I'm one of, I was at a, the, that, uh, that theater on Vermont, the three theaters. Mm-hmm. There's Los Feliz Three, and I was there a couple of years ago with some buddies of mine, and I wasn't even thinking about it, but there was an Asian lady taking tickets, and she had kind of a strong accent. Not too bad, but it was, you know, it was Asian. Right. And my buddy goes up, I want one for whatever show, okay, and I gave him a ticket, and, and, and then he and another buddy got another ticket, and I don't know what the movie was, you know, Mission Impossible or something, it was before that, but yeah. I said, uh, she goes, can I help you? And I said, yeah, one for Mission Impossible. <laughs> and I wasn't trying to be awful. I wasn't thinking about it. I was just going, hey, yeah, one for Mission Impossible. <laughs> my buddies went, what the fuck are you doing? Went, oh, oh, I f- yes. Oh, no. I, oh. How did you get out of that? It's terrible. She kind of looked at me, and then we didn't speak of it. And she gave me the ticket, and I gave her the money, and I walked away. You I'm didn't like, try to like keep it going like you normally talk that way and just fake it or something yeah sure. <laughs> thank you very much this how i talk all the time <laughs> yeah <laughs> nothing wrong here you get paid to do that that's yeah. the hard part yeah i know oh that's terrible <laughs> yeah i didn't think about that for your kid seeing you not seeing you but knowing you do that too that's a, yeah. that's a bad role model Probably. Oh, that's the least of it, I'm sure. You know. Yeah, my dad did his little voice. So that's that's not bad. Yeah, there's the other shit too. <laughs> so what what got you out of Iowa originally? Greyhound. Nice. <laughs> I did actually though. I dropped out of college after a year and a half, and I got on a Greyhound and went to New York. Oh wow. And I sat. What were you s- taking in college? Theater stuff. I did theater mm-hmm. stuff in college and got a scholarship, and and then uh, oh. had to leave because it wasn't, it wasn't, what I needed to be doing. I think. Right. Did you like Iowa in general, though? You got like. I like Iowa more now than I did then. Sure. I was I was like easier everybody. to appreciate when you're, when you're a little older and you have some distance. But it's it it can be pretty um. Pretty awful when you get there, but I uh, Iowa City was a bit of an oasis. That's a nice little cultural mm-hmm. sort of ping. It's a nice. Yeah. But in general, you're making your own fun and growing up, doing stuff in all yeah. the small towns. But then, uh, so then New, yeah. and then New York, like, what was it like landing there? It was pretty good. It was good. I, you know, I'd been there for a, a, a couple weeks. I think that's. I went up. There's a. I met a guy named Martin Golden, who's now a, has a flamenco company called Noche Flamenca, wow. in uh, Madrid. They tour around the states and stuff but he was studying i think american studies at the university of iowa and i met him doing a play i saw a guy sitting up and watching our rehearsal and i talked to him afterwards he's a puerto rican kid he's half uh he looked puerto rican but he's half argentinian half jewish and his father was a physicist and his mother's a dancer who's old friends with joe chaikin and and shepherd and these guys and she had this wild crew and this sort of pretty hippie-ish, funky New York place on 86th Street. So I went up there and stayed with him for a week and went, oh, I got to live here. So I went back to school for another, I think, year and then dropped out. So this is this is it. Right. Yeah, I was working one summer. So one summer I went, I was working at a natural gas compression station in Vider, Texas, and then went from there to New York and stayed there for a week, two weeks, and then went, fuck it, I got to get back to New York. Yeah, so then went Cowboy. back there. Yeah, yeah definitely. 
Yeah, it's that kind of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then we were trying to get into theater at that time. Yeah, I did, and then I uh, uh, he was he was no not no I, no I was just living in New York, but yeah. then he went on an audition for um, Jerzy Grotowski, who was this Polish theater director guy, and down at NYU because he's going to NYU, and mm-hmm. he said I don't know if you want to come down and audition for it, you can't. What do you got to do? You got to sing a song and then move to it. All right, so there was maybe forty people auditioning and and. There was these, they had those metal doors with the glass window with the wire mesh in it that you could see through. And I guess Grotowski, I found out later, he picked everybody from the warm-up. So he picked six people because they had a lot of technique, mm-hmm. I heard. And then he picked six people because they had no technique. And he picked me because he wasn't sure what the fuck I was doing, <laughs> from what I heard. It's true, I was goofing off. And, and uh, right. yeah, let's take this asshole. There, there, there's something there. Were so, you doing like sort of that Pete and Pete stuff then? No, it, it was just... This is way before Pete and Pete. Yeah, but just it like, was. That seems like a natural ability, though, to yeah. look that strange. It, it well, it was before Pete and Pete, but it wasn't. Was it before? Yes, it was even before the. Uh, yeah, the Artie was after Grotowski, so maybe the Grotowski helped. Uh, so Artie. So, so training. That was it. Training got you. Yeah, there, maybe yeah. that was it. But then I went to Irvine and studied for a couple of years, or er, right. er, er, uh, for a while with Grotowski, and then. At mm-hmm. the end of it, called my buddy in North Hollywood, and he was living in a house in North Hollywood with, mm-hmm. you know, Steele and these Higgins guys and him. And so I hung out there and lived in a garage and then went back to Iowa, then back to New York and lived there for 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And so what was that? How was that training? Was it just getting you? You're just young and you're learning it was, it was. It was voodoo. We found out later. We were learning Haitian songs, and we were... Seriously? We were, yeah, and we were doing these movements to him, and we didn't find find out later these little songs about Papa Dumbala. Papa Dumbala, Dumbala, Ukonem Sevunum, Papa. Is that kind of a thing? Uh, but and uh, mm-hmm. but they told us to show up at five the first day. And so well, what are we gonna do? They just, oh. their hand up they stop very quiet very quiet and you go seven hours of doing stuff and no one would talk to you but they were you were learning things and they were showing you these movements and the sort of integrated movement with a song or with an idea or or state of kind of consciousness and being and and uh, we did this thing called the slow walk which was really wonderful we'd all go up this hill the top of this hill and then come down doing the slow walk thing and uh, it was maybe a hundred and maybe 200 yards away the top of this hill and it took you know, an hour to get down doing the slow walk, a very slow walk with, you know, 15 people or 13 people where we were, just slowly going down. And then they had a discussion one day because when you stopped the slow walk, it had to be sort of a precise regimented thing. And there was a step. You had to step up back into the big yurt. And so do you stop the slow walk first, then step up into the yurt, or do you continue into the yurt Doing the slow walk was a big, was a big discussion <laughs> we had. But I, you know, I thought that was sort of beautiful. I thought that was the yeah. way it should be. That was good. So yeah. <clears throat> well, that's like that's. I mean, no matter what you're going to end up doing, you obviously got a lot out of that. So you pour your cocktail. Yeah. The whole. I mean, I mean, it's just kind of funny that then you became Artie after. <laughs> well, now that happened. I met this girl in Iowa City named Mary Jo Barry. Which is a great name for a girl in Iowa City. Yeah, she lives down in uh, San Diego or something now. Yeah, Mary Jo Barry. And I saw her in a bagel place in, in Iowa City and just went, oh, my Jesus, who is that? 
and just struck me, lightning struck, boom, ran after her, talked to her, oh, yeah, we started going out, and I got in a pair of red long underwear, because uh, it was cold in Iowa, this is after living in L.A. for a year and a half or something, went back to Iowa, before I went to New York finally for 10 years, and you're there, and I had the uh, long underwear, and there was a the little place I was staying, I forget what street it was on, it was in Iowa City, and, and I would put this underwear on, and, th you know, they always have a substantial crotch. I'm not sure why, but that red long, and it was red long like underwear. Like the old Westy kind of yeah, stuff? Yeah, they have, yeah, 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 long underwear, but the crotch is always voluminous. I didn't get it. Like if it was a mistake with, with you know, a mistake they were making in China that they thought, oh, there's a there's decent giant crotched Americans. We have to really <laughs> fill this out. I didn't understand. So I would take these things and I could pull them up over my nipples. I mean, right. really high. It was, I mean, talking a giant crotch. <laughs> they were my size. The rest of the length was fine. But I'd pull them up over my nipples and sort of like do a strongman thing for her, um. you know. So it was all about a chick having fun with a girl I think is you know right. having fun with a woman at the time and I was crazy about her so we had you know I was goofing off and then I That's did funny. it as a character in Iowa City and my old friend Mark McCright who was from Marshalltown who's an artist mm -hmm. uh, was doing it with me and he had a, a broom and he'd hold me at bay with the broom because I was this sort of and I had wingtips and the glasses and the red things and but I didn't have a shirt, and I was like this psychotic guy who was sort of a broken person who thought he was a strong man, but in actuality, he'd been sort of through some awful sort of abusive shit, and I'd do kind of a monologue. And it was really tragic and, and, and awful Were initially. Were you normal, or did you have the voice then? No, it was the voice was then, too. I don't yeah. know where that came from. Probably just impress Mary Jo more. more. But the voice came out of what I thought a strong man, how a strong man would talk, mm -hmm. maybe from like advertising or something the way that some words would be yeah. bold and s bigger than other words in a in a charles atlas ad or something i don't know be the strongest man you can be <laughs> and strongest would be giant you know big bigger font and darker letters and they'd be emboldened and that could be it right and then so wait so you went back how long were you back in iowa i was back in iowa for like eight months and then in, and oh, then okay. in, and then in the same week uh -huh. my old friend ben katz called me up and wanted me to be in a play in New York. And then uh, John Lennon called me up and said, you got to get back to the church because I need a maintenance man. John Lennon, not the uh, Beatle, but John Lennon, the uh, <laughs> the uh, pederast Catholic. Oh, I guess I shouldn't say that. Uh, the Alleged? I, I, alleged pederast Catholic priest uh, at a uh, church on 90th Street in the Upper West Side years of years ago. He's probably met some unfortunate demise by now, we can only hope. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he got a little frisky with me one night, and I had to— so oh, I, I Oh, true, yeah, yeah, yeah. As I left, oh. he, he, had had, he had had some scotches. In his defense, he was, tr he was drunk. <laughs> In his defense, he was drunk and only wearing his boxer shorts. However— oh. <laughs> say, well, so you, I was living in New York, and I was the maintenance man at a Catholic church when I went back up there. So I went from doing wow. Artie for a sweet girl and then was a maintenance man at a Catholic church for a while. And uh, <laughs> there was a priest from Africa there, and uh, and I lived right. above the church on this building on 90th Street. And uh, Trying to get theater gigs? Or I was gigs. doing a play, that play with my oh, friend wow. Ben Katz, this Derek Cloud play uh -huh. on uh, the Lower East Side at Chadas, El mm -hmm. Bojillo which was on, I think, 8th and B, and did that and then stayed in New York and got construction gigs after I flew the coop 
from uh, mm-hmm. the literal uh, grasp of the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> the literal grasp. And uh, stayed with and my buddy Andrew and Theo, uh, Andrew Steele and Theo, were in uh, mm-hmm. Jersey City at the time living. And that was before Jersey City was inhabitable inhabitable by Caucasians. So, But sure. they had found a little place to live. So we lived there for... A, a couple months and then went to first and first in the Lower East Side and I stayed there for probably 10 years. So that was 88, 89, something like that. Wow. Yeah. And so then that's when Beavis and Butthead, ju- the judge meeting and... People yeah, it was after close. that. Yeah. It was That was probably yeah. 94, 5, 6 around in there, you know. Oh, okay. So wait, so Pete and Pete are, is what years? We were just talking about this Pete before. Pete and Pete was maybe 94, 95. Okay. And then out of that came the MTV promos, which was right. 95, 96 or something. And then... Okay. Meet and Judge was in there, and I think Beavis and Butthead was 95, 96, and then, or maybe 94, 95. So, uh, it was a Pete and Pete, so there. somebody, how did that character, how did this um, thing for Mary Jo uh, yeah. get to be on? And, God, did she see it? That'd be great to know. Do you, you know, th- I, um, you know, we're friends on Facebook. I should, of course. I think she's, she's aware of it, yeah, yeah, she's aware of it. I, I don't know if That's she's aware that she's yeah. sort of, uh. She was. It she, seems like she was the reason for the inception right, right. of it, you know. <laughs> and my buddy Mark McCright named him. I said, "What should this guy be?" And he was right. an art guy, and he went, "Artie." I went, "Fucking, wow, that's perfect." <laughs> so that worked out nice. So um, was that like a matter of a? Um, how did that gig come about? I was I was doing performances in the Lower East Side uh, at the time. Uh-huh. There was when there was still sort of performance art pre uh, alternative comedy kind of stuff you know it was right there when it was sort of the world was switching over there was stand up mm-hmm. and there was performance art mm-hmm. sort of things and and uh i was doing it at different places downtown and this guy will mcrobb saw it and then i was tending bar at the knitting factory on oh. houston street yeah and he came up one time and uh i was stacking chairs you know making shit money the knitting factory was the fucking worst place in the world for tips it was a, 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 a good place to get a gun shoved in your face, but a bad place for tips. Wow. It was really, people were making it bars in, bars in Manhattan at the time. You were making, what, $800 a night on a Friday night if you're attending bar? And I'd make 60 Let's see, 45 Because there were the fucking jazz chiselers that would come in, and they would get stoned outside, and they'd fucking come in to get herbal tea. It was terrible. But, you know, I'm only, only myself to blame because <laughs> I was so <laughs> lame. I didn't know how to get her to a fucking... That's so I was doing construction, right? you know, interior drywall stuff and, and painting, interior painting, and, and um, mm-hmm. trying to do plays and then working at the knitting factory, but then also performing, doing performance stuff downtown. So right. this guy shows up, and he's this... this Redhead dude is up and he goes, hey, I really like your work. I've seen you. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm doing a, sh- a thing for Nickelodeon that were just these little 30-second promos. And I went, all right. So I did that, and I said, yeah, I'll, I'll uh, sign up for those. And then uh, I realized I had to sign the character away. And I went, wait. When they did the series, I went, oh, that, that's terrible. I said, no, I want to do stuff with this character. This is going to be great. And a buddy of mine went, well, kill him. What do you fucking care? You'll come up with more characters. This is going to be a great thing for you to do in the Canada. It was. Everything came out of it. You know, it came out of that little thing. So, you know, it was, uh, it turned out it was pretty fortuitous. But. Yeah. And it came, like I think, and maybe everybody says this, the the best show that people didn't see or missed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I don't know how I missed it because then I'd be in my 20s 
and it definitely wasn't I, I remember for a long time i didn't have cable due to cost but still yeah. like i mean ren and stimpy really got across to people you know yeah there were those little yeah the the new everybody growing up on cartoons everybody growing up on kids shows sesame street at the very least and then you know, just hanging on to that too long, but finding the new shows that yeah. sort of replicated that. Yeah, yeah. Will McRobb, who you know, developed Pete and Pete with Chris Viscardi, was a uh, mm-hmm. he was a story editor on Ren and Stimpy, I think. Mm-hmm. I think he told me one time that uh, Chris Velucci wanted to have Ren or whoever it was jump off a building, like a fifty-story building. He jumped off, and when he slammed into the ground, his testicles bounced back up in the scrotum to the top of the building and then came down and slammed in him. And he went, oh, you know what? I don't know if we're going to get that past standards and practices. And Chris Lucci went, fuck it, pull the whole episode. He went, no, I'm just saying, can we not have his balls go up to the top? And he went, no, fuck it, pull the whole episode. So pulled the whole thing because wow. he couldn't get his nutsack joke in there that he wanted, apparently. Oh, yeah. Uh, but so while you're doing um, Artie, so since it's your guy, was it were the scripts? Did you kind of get to do what you needed to do? Yeah, Will, Will and fun. Chris sort of let me run around, and they would give me kind of ideas, and they, we uh, definite. Some lines were definite because you wanted to get the plot moving to a certain place, but then how how mm-hmm. I'd get there was kind of up to me sometimes. So they let me have pretty free reign, which was really great of them. They were great to work with, and they still are. I just did some voices on a cartoon out here, this Sanjay and Craig thing. Mm-hmm. So we've had, you know, we've known each other 20-plus years and stuff. It's fantastic. And when you guys are making it, do you feel like, was there a popularity? Or is it uh, when the it show was, was actually No, it was on? a weirdo. It was a weirdo, and, and Nickelodeon didn't know what the fuck to do with it because it was yeah. it was not you know sort of in line with i think what nickelodeon it eventually became to be which was not the alternative voice it was the sort of mainstream voice for kids that have would have mm-hmm. interesting programming sometime but nothing really uh as unique i think as pete and pete yeah. you know but yeah it's a we- you know you can't blame them either for going well this fucking show is too weird <laughs> all right well let's put on you know Clarissa tells all or some horse shit like that or whatever it was. It comes down to like paying bills and the I think so, but go. then but, but then you would want you know, you'd want a station to be a little bit more adventurous, like you know, ultimately. But Yeah. It seems like, you know, when I worked But they're not in the business of being creative and adventurous, they're in the business of yeah. making money and they accidentally, now and again, through random chance, they get an interesting show. It's not because yeah. smart people work there. It's because somebody accidentally said yes to Pete and Pete. It went on for three years before somebody went why the fuck is the show on? And then they shut it down. Yeah, right. Why the fuck? Who the fuck said yes to this? <laughs> it wasn't like a regime regime change that happens a lot. I don't think so. Yeah. I think somebody just got grumpy and said, hey, this isn't making money, and it's too fucking weird for my children. My children deserve better than this. <laughs> fucking uh, Dora the Explorer. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get a Mexican with a map. That's what we need. What the? I don't know. Like, but the fan base is just incredible, and yeah. and I was just rewatching before he came over on YouTube. Just our our Artie, the strongest man. A lot of good stuff comes up. The, yeah. Ar- the Artie workout came up, which yeah. holds up. <laughs> yeah, yeah great. Lifting up, lifting up a house. That was one. I think that was the thirty second promo. I think that was one of the earliest ones we oh, did. It's, long. it's like two minutes. Oh, is it? It's pretty oh, long. I if it was a little. Because it's a whole uh. thing where they got like jogging, and then they oh, show that's you. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, the house was good. You raise, yeah, because you raise a, a head of cabbage. Oh, that's right. There was one really great bit when uh, uh, Steve Buscemi played Alan's dad. Uh, he, uh, I was, I, 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 I was sort of at war with him, and and I was fucking with him 
Artie the character was, and and uh, I moved his house just slightly, like an inch, and and it was because he was such a regulated guy. He comes home and he goes to put the key in the lock, and he misses the lock by an inch. What the fuck? He looks around. What the fuck? He was such a great little gag. He just moved it a little bit just to fucking make him crazy because every day he put that key in the exact same spot, and he missed it. Wow! And this world goes upside down. It was really great. It's pretty great. It holds up. Then, uh, then. Now, does that lead that sort of stuff lead to? Uh, are we worried at all about being? Um, uh, how much typecasting are you worried about? You seem like a person that just likes. You're gonna work. And maybe yeah. that's your Iowa background, but I think so. Yeah, you gotta work. Yeah, yeah that's what you do is work. Right. But I think typecasting. I, I, um, I think if Pete and Pete was super popular, I might have been typecast as a, a weirdo. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I think it was under the radar enough that I didn't get typecast as that. There's a few things that I should have probably gotten typecast for, but I didn't because they were mm-hmm. no one saw them. So I think if I ever did something that was super huge that a lot of people saw, then I would get typecast for Just it. But it. you know, as long as you're barely employable and probably lame, <laughs> you're not going to get typecast as <laughs> fucking anything. What else could you have gotten typecast as? Uh, you know, if if if. Um, you know, some shitty um, TV show went. You know, some right. some uh, there was one I did on on uh, on Warner Brothers. This series called The Nikki Show or something. I could have gotten typecast as that kind of a guy or mm-hmm. another kind of a guy in something. You know, but um, have you done those pi- those uh, TV pilots that don't go? Yeah, I did a few of those. Yeah. I did one with Kirstie Alley that was based on the Minister of Dibley, that British show. Oh, yeah. Okay. It was, yeah, like four years ago. And a guy, I forget his name, but he's one of the guys in uh, uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Big pork chop sideburn British guy who was really good in it. Right, yeah. Yeah, the stockier sort of first, not first made-ish, but that kind of, he was upper in the echelon. I didn't watch those. I haven't seen those. They're the lovely movies, apparently. Right. But who, who? But, uh, <laughs> but just the pilot. Uh, yeah, the pilot. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was weird. Yeah. But then, so the voice does voice acting work almost better where you're getting? Is it hard to get gigs or? For me, apparently, it's impossible to get gigs because <laughs> I don't get I don't get hired for them unless old friends of mine are doing shows, you know. But if I go out on I don't know I go out on auditions and I don't get shit I don't get jack shit. What are those auditions like? Do you just stand in a room and read shit off a text and then? Yeah. Uh, you know, you decide how squirrely you want to live your life. If you want to go for it and do the fucking squirrely voice, then live it up. You right. know, I'm just, I'm not, I don't know. Have I'm, you tried getting the, that more, I guess, co- I would guess commercial work where it's just an announcer? Yeah, I I think, yeah, but that, I don't know. I, I have a lisp or something, I think. Maybe my S's are weird. or yeah. Or I'm just not. I'm just not that voice. There are guys you that you see like it's in the like room, guys. but but you see those guys and you go, holy fuck! You know they smoke just enough cigarettes to make that voice kind of incredible. And those guys and they have a resonating, a resonating thing, and that's how they talk. Good morning, Carla. How are you? Now, what a fucking racket that is to get trapped with that shitty voice. But it seems like you just sitting you, here like... You, what toppings do you want on that? What, sir, what top... <laughs> Pepperoni. Sausage. Shut up. What a fucking asshole. Oh, yeah, so you're saying people who can't turn it off. 
They're just talking. Yeah, well, They're I mean, really I mean, just, I think they are. They are. I've, I've met a couple interviews. of those guys. Okay. It's astounding. That giant resonating voice. They probably had some structure when they were born, born some giant head right. vocal cord thing resonating box that just sounds good and deep and rich and then smoked and drank whatever on top of it to make it this other thing. And those and those guys, you want to hear them. You listen to that voice and go, ah, yeah. Good voice. Right. That's good voice, boy. You know. They're, they're at Taco Bell ordering the same way. Yeah. They're at, you know, every sort of restaurant. The. Uh, Do you want me to wear the panties? <laughs> I will put them on. I will, I will put them on. Yeah. But see, now you sit here and you can't. It almost seems like you have a living just by making fun of those guys, except you're not. You're just doing their voice. Yeah, like it's just one more voice. Well, I I think it's like maybe like a rock and roll singer. I think those guys just mm. they try to sound like their version of a rock and roll singer, and maybe voiceover mm-hmm. guys just try to sound like their version of the deep throated voiceover guy. <laughs> and I think there's a certain thing you can get into in guys that work on the mic and do a lot of mic work. And they and they think about that. So they go home and they go, "Oh, I should have. God damn it!" <laughs> next on ABC, ABC, next, uh, next on But you know, they work on that shit. I think at home. And what is what or does that maybe mean? Not. What does mic work really mean? It it it's you know you have to you have to and get settled down and relax it and get in there and you really right. you really growl each word and you comment. And enunciate, but they have bigger things that do that, and, and yeah. I, I think it, it, it's fascinating stuff to to a point. Mm-hmm. You can watch a guy for about fifteen minutes and go, "Wow, that's great," and then you see the awful hell that he lives in. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I like think that uh, Riley Martin dude. Which guy is that? That's the guy that was washing windows in Pittsburgh, you know, or something. Oh, Riley Martin. Mm. Remember that he was a. And I don't know his backstory. It was like a YouTube thing. He used to be a. Uh, uh-huh. Used to be a weatherman or a TV announcer with a golden voice. And mm. turns out he likes crack more than announcing. So, <laughs> or getting fucked up more than announcing. Right. Well, whatever. God right. love you. You know, not everybody can love announcing more than everything else. But. Right. So he he <laughs> loved. I think he loved doing drugs more. So so he ended up on the street, and he's washing windows and shit, and some guy went by and said, uh, hey, I'll give you a dollar, whatever, and if you oh, do your funny voice again. You don't again. mean he's working at a car wash. You mean? No, he's a homeless dude on the street wow. with a squeegee, squeegee man. Wow. KFJB, Marshalltown, or whatever, and the guy went, here's a dollar, and then it, YouTube made the rounds, and then he was on Good Morning America and Letterman and stuff, and I then do he know that part. sadly That's reverted right. back to being... You know, a drug yeah. addict or a nut. And then he's right. on Sirius, I think, XM now and again. With, oh, wow. Yeah, with crazy conspiracy theories. And so he's a, he's a you know, he's a puppet. And yeah. it's, a, it's a weird. Show up in weird. You show up in work. But one thing that nobody, or at least I don't think that people pay attention enough to is you got to deal with timing a lot, right? Yeah. Like you can't just go in and be the funny Asian guy. Just keep yeah. saying shit. Keep saying shit. I mean, yeah. you really got to react to what's on a page in a matter of this can't be <clears throat> is it as down as much as you can't be 30 seconds we need you to do this in yeah 30 yeah, seconds. yeah 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 that's maddening yeah it can be but usually in in scripted stuff there's room to to mm-hmm. to mess around with it and and you know sort of find your own time but i think mm-hmm. in some stuff like the you know the campbell soup announcer guy's got to do it in a certain amount of time i think 
more like advertisements, more of a problem. I guess. But yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the other stuff is fun. The, the character stuff is fun because it's more like acting than just announcing soup. Right. Yeah. Soup announcing. That might be a nice gig to get into. <laughs> People so, still eat it. Soup announcing. Well, has King of the Hill just been one fun ride then? Yeah, it was it was fun. It's done. It was, you know, yeah. I think 13 years or something. Wow. It was fun. That's crazy. And it is a it, long time. Do you get on a show like that in your staff, or is it as simple as like you get along with Mike, so you get to keep working? Oh, I was on. I was a. They were they were the five main characters, and I was right. number. I was like the sixth man off the bench. So I was in maybe two thirds of the episodes. Mm. And uh, yeah, yeah. And then is it any? Is it? Uh, did you ever get into the writing of it at all? No. Mm. No, the writers were great on that thing. Yeah. Really fantastic. They got really great guys to write it and great girls to write it. And and they uh, every week you came in and there was a really good script. It was crazy. And that's one wow. thing you, you you see, too. I mean, after doing that for so long and having great scripts like that, mm-hmm. and the Simpsons guys are probably the same way, that they get these great scripts all the time. Mm-hmm. So when you go on a sitcom or some other show and see that, oh, God, it can be maddening. It really can. Because <laughs> right. these guys, could they were really good, and they could craft a fucking story. Yeah. It was fantastic. And really detailed good stuff. And we're, we were talking about that before, too, the way improv has gotten to be uh, just overdone. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and people like that's the, the good scripted stuff seems like you're making it up. seems like you're talking. Yeah. Yeah, but sometimes it, it would go... Oh, Away from that, away from natural stuff, and you were in the hands of somebody who was making a story up, mm-hmm. you know, and that was good too. That was okay too. That that they were telling a grand story, you know, on a small scale of Hank and his little family doing their thing. Right. But you knew you weren't under any illusions that it was a sort of a magical event that was appearing before your eyes. It was mm-hmm. seamless uh, in a lot of ways sometimes, but but then it was it was a real story, and it was somebody working on a story. You know, yeah. it was a, it was a, it was a nice painting, a sound painting. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So all along, what, what's, uh, what I think is interesting, you've kept uh, photography and painting and just sort of the stuff you've been doing on the side. We were talking yeah. at the start about stuff that doesn't make any money. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that just sort of like fun pursuits for you? Yeah, but it's stuff I that, that I like doing. Right. I've actually had made some money off the photos and the painting, not a ton, but you know, oh, I've yeah. actually gotten paid. You know, <laughs> I have a whole bunch of paintings called the Cocksucker series that are these sort of portraits, these two by three foot canvases in, in oil that have an obscenity that I make up below them. I just came up with two other ones a uh-huh. couple of days ago. I wrote down one was throat whore. <laughs> That's a nice one, and the other one is hump fudge. Oh, I've never heard that. I'm making them up. I'm making it up right now, yeah. Hump Fudge is because I was shooting a Lance Accord. You know him? He's, yeah. Yeah. DP. Yeah. DP, he's a director. He's trying to, he said yeah. he's got something going on with uh, DreamWorks maybe now or something. But his, uh, I did a commercial he was, he was directing on Monday and Tuesday. And there was a kid, 25-year-old kid or something. Uh, and we're doing something. We're all, it was for Verizon or something. It was whatever, awful, wonderful sort of stuff. But, uh they had a German Shepherd, like in the big office room of these people who were coming up with different and smart ideas for Verizon. And this kid sitting down, and the dog has to come over and lick the kid's face. So uh-huh. the kid, uh, they, they put some stuff on his cheek, 
like the guy had a little jar, like a Carmex jar, but it had like dog food in it or maybe it was ass smell and the dog loved it and he put it on his face and the dog ran over and licked his face and and then okay it's cut let's do it again put some more on there put some more on his face and over the kid i said dude you better be you better be sure that that's not humping fudge because that dog will come over and fuck your face and he looks at me what i said it's fucking hump fudge is serious shit buddy and i walked away <laughs> poor little child <laughs> oh, poor little boy. I think he knew I, he knew I showed up pretty yeah, quick. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> but hump fudge, that, that was an accident. So that's going to be a nice painting coming up with it. Just a that's portrait of a two-color portrait with a man's face or woman's face. Yeah. Hump fudge. <laughs> yeah. Man. Sometimes your best work is when you're 10. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. To come up with stuff, you know. Yeah. I was it's not because you're more clever when you're younger mm-hmm. or because you don't have a filter. I think you just don't say, <laughs> I think you just don't say no to things. Mm-hmm. Every, there's a lot of yes being said and you go through your your 20s and 30s and there's a lot of no being said again I'm defining myself with shit that I don't want to do I don't like that that guy's gay that music is shitty this is fucking dumb these guys are assholes I'm the outsider I have the hipster stance you do not and then you realize that there's a lot more joy in saying yes to, to everything yeah. and then you sort of come back around yeah, at least I did and I have some friends of mine I think have had similar sort of sort of you know routes but when you come back around the outside and start saying yes to everything the world gets interesting and good again you know what got you into painting and and doing photography you just like that sort of stuff as a kid and yeah nobody was telling you no yeah my father didn't want me to take art classes in high school because he thought they were sort of your dad wanted you to no he didn't want me to okay that's what because they were sort (laughs) of uh they were sort of blow off classes and and did your parents just have like regular jobs he was a teacher in the high school. He taught chemistry and thought, well, don't take art. Art's horseshit. Why don't you study some real stuff? And he was right, basically. Art is horseshit. But uh, I like that horseshit. It's fun. Right. Uh, so uh, I just didn't in New York and try to paint now and again, but wasn't very serious about it. It wasn't until I got out here that you know, I got a studio and mm-hmm. still have an hour and out water and, and uh, started just painting and saw, well, look, I have to – see what I can do with this I have to try it because I like it and maybe it'll be awful and there's a lot I've done a lot of awful stuff but I've done some good stuff I think that I like and the same thing with photographs I've always been taking photographs not always but mm-hmm. um, I think I got my first SLR when I and you know I made some money doing construction and I got it uh-huh. it was a Minolta and I think I paid like 800 bucks for it 600 bucks back in 88 or something that's a lot of money and Went to Italy with this Italian girlfriend that I was going out with, this girl from Italy, and we went there and hung out in Tuscany for about a month one summer. Wow. And uh, I took one photo. I took a bunch of photos of this one photo when I got back from the processors. I looked at it. It's gorgeous. It looked like, uh, it looked like, it looked, it looked magazine quality. But I remember just, it was pretty saturated nicely, and, and uh, I set it up pretty well, and I thought, well, I wonder if I know what I'm doing. Huh? Do I should I do more? And I've just been sort of all along going through, you know, photos and photos and stuff. And now I'm, there's a there's a few different series that I have that I really like and mm-hmm. and uh, you know. Are you thinking about when you're coming um, up like your website? You're getting going, and I see you yeah, got yeah. the Florida series. Yeah. Are you taking trips? I am. You know, I took one to, to Florida. So. Well, this year I I, yeah. I I went to Florida. I'd never gone there, but I thought Florida, the Florida, Northern Florida, would be the place to go because it it seems awful there 
<laughs> it seems fucking awful and interesting, and it, and it was awful and, and interesting. And, you know, I was there a couple months before Trayvon Martin got uh, oh, wow. whipped around there, and and it was uh, – it is a really juiced-up shithole up there. It's fantastic. Very American and very perfect. Yeah. And and all the all the good and bad that America is is right there in that area. And I thought, well, I got to go there. And then – I got cast in this picture 42 about Jackie Robinson that we was going to shoot in the South. But the guy that I was portraying, Clyde Sukforth, mm-hmm. is from Waldboro, Maine. I thought, well, I right. got to go to Maine and find out about this dude. So I went up to Maine one weekend, too, like a Wednesday to Sunday. Uh-huh. And uh, took a lot of photos in Maine and, and you know, Man, asked I, about this guy and found out about this dude and researched it. And it was beautiful. I, I, I can't think of two states that probably never get mentioned together. Less than Maine and Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're very weird. <laughs> and did you feel like they're very different? A lot. Yeah, you felt like they are two different places. Well, they're two different places, but there's real similarities in them. There, there, there's an American. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an America. A thing, an American thing that is in a. It's look. I think there's a a new. There's sort of this new visual aesthetic going on, and I think it's born out of the suburbs. And I think mm-hmm. when I was a kid, downtown Marshalltown, Iowa, had these old brick buildings, and I'd go down there and think, this is a beautiful, this makes me feel, this is a beautiful town, this makes me feel warm and secure and good, and I pass them all the time, and I see them. And, and so I equated that home, good hearth, home feeling with those brick buildings downtown the visual stuff that i saw more than anything else more than tv and movies was the shit that i saw every day going home from school going downtown with mom or dad to the Mm -hmm. to the you know store and seeing things in the old courthouse and i think that's different now it's not better or worse it's different but i think there's kids that grew up outside of tucson or, or outside of omaha nebraska or macon georgia and or you know portland maine and they have the giant Walmart receiving station, and they never make it to downtown. They don't need to go to downtown. They're out in the suburbs, and they have strip malls, and they have a 40,000-square-foot, you know, Walmart building and or a 50,000-square-foot mattress warehouse. Right. And they pass those every day. Yeah. And if they had a good family life or not, they still pass those, and those are the places that invoke home to them. Mm-hmm. And it's very different than what invokes home to me and very different than what invokes a home and a healthy place to somebody who grew up in an urban environment and in, right in the city in, in New York or in, the, you know, in Los Angeles or Hollywood or something. So I thought, well, now can I – could you drive past it? You go to Palmdale and drive past that shit and it will rip your face off because it's so awful and desolate out there and you think it's everything is broken and nothing right. works. and. And the streets don't work, and the people don't work, and relationships don't work, and love doesn't work, and religion doesn't fucking work. It's all done. San Bernardino, it's all broken. It doesn't work there anymore. But can I, as a 47-year-old guy, switch my visual aesthetic around to look at that stuff and see what some kid who grew up in it sees, that they can find, they drive past that quarter-mile-long building that is just beige tin with five trees in front of it and one weird driver that sort of swoops down and an American flag in the corner. 
with a truck always parked outside. Can I drive past that and an empty lot across from it? Can you drive past that, see something beautiful in that? Mm-hmm. Can you look at that thing and go, now that's a beautiful part of it, without saying, I'm commenting on how desolate it is out here. We know there's a, there's a desolateness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not as compact and full of life. We know that. But is there something beautiful in that thing? So I've been trying to find some sort of the key to a different kind of a language by going out and, and driving to these places in Alabama and, and Tennessee and Georgia and Maine and Iowa and, and Washington State. And I want to go to Little Rock is the next one I want to go to because mm-hmm. I've never been there. But Little Rock seems like it's right. it's a, a feckin' fucking shithole out in Little Rock. It's got to be fucking beautiful out there. Yeah. you know. So that's history, what I've been yeah. doing basically. I've been trying to sort of, can I retrain myself aesthetically to find mm-hmm. beauty and value in this sort of wasted American hopeless landscape. And I think I can't, I think it's there, mm-hmm. but it does make you feel awful if you sit in that and you really look at it and you sit in that and take photos of it all day. It, it can be wretched, yeah, just wretched. <laughs> but there's something there, there's something right. there because it can't just be, you can't just be, you know, raising a race of, of soulless, you know, soulless fucks who have no aesthetic sense they're seeing something. They're not soulless. There's some right. love there. There's some love of the land and the people and the architecture and the environment. There's something there. Yeah. You know. Are you still, have you changed with the digital revolution? Did you, have you, uh, are you still working with lenses or do yeah. you, what kind of camera are you working with this, now? Well, I have that shitty iPhone that I take around. That's not so shitty. It takes okay pictures, but yeah. I have, I just got a Nikon D800. That's a nice little sort of, it's almost a medium format. Mm-hmm. You know, camera, but but it's digital. Like, yeah, I think yeah. I I I don't know. I, it's it's hard not to be. I think people that well, digital is is so cost effective and so great. It was a, a ton of money to get negatives. You know, yeah. this physical thing, and I think people that really hold that up as, you know. Oh, they're assholes. I still shoot on film. Oh, do you? You still shoot? Yes. Who's your Who's the sugar daddy? Where are you getting your money? Fuck nuts, because it costs a lot of money, and you take a lot of fucking photos. What do you? What do you? You get proof sheets of everything, or you get you get prints of everything. Well, you got to be fucking rich to do that. It has and to it, be. And it has it to be your job. Look, that doesn't look better than this film. Doesn't look better than digital. It did twenty years ago when it was just starting. It's like in in you know movie film. It, it film. It's you can't you, fucking tell me that film looks better than digital. No, you've got to be doing. It looks, you know what it is? There's there's very certain things. There's I, few people I, I that know how to light film anymore. I would imagine. Oh, those people will those, probably well those, twenty years. Those they're people, gone. Like yeah. yeah, a they're all really old. Yeah. Um, and B, it's like if you're gonna keep working, you're just gonna have to learn the new you stuff. Learn, but I but I but I, I don't say anything wrong with digital. I mean, yeah. film can look better than digital, but I think digital can look better than film. Mm-hmm. It, it's just a matter of aesthetics and cost and. We can't do this without talking about Rudy Cassone. Yeah. The most important work of art yeah. you've yeah. ever done. For a period of time, you, you did this variety show where you were um, yeah. Rudolfo. Oh, I forgot his real last name. Casanetto or something like Cazanetto. that. Oh, yeah. good. Okay, you don't remember. <laughs> something like that. This is, this is That's another immigrant. website i got to yep. get taken care of. Someone's got to deal with that one. Yeah, that one, yeah, that has yeah. some 2010 info on it. Yeah. But for a while, you did this variety show at the Steve Allen yeah. Theater that was... Really, maybe I was the only person who saw it more than once, but it was incredibly entertaining. Same thing every time, but still. 
like yeah. really amazing. You, you were a person. Sorry, Rudy was this person who um, possibly was uh, Frank Sinatra's bastard son. Yeah. yeah, yeah, possibly Sinatra's bastard son, and and I uh, would sing, and and the show would sort of fall apart around me with bad acts, and there would be stupid shit that was happening, and and uh, yeah. But amazing, amazing acts. You had the Reno 911 guys. Yeah, yeah. There, the lampshades. Yeah, the lampshades would come in, and Tom Lennon and Ben Grant were always coming up with new things, and uh, Billy the Mind coming things. in and really yeah, disturbing people in a new way. Stuff, yeah, yeah. So, what, was this something you were doing uh, for fun? Yeah, you know, I, I, I was doing a good, one of those things that you have. I, I think it was like painting a little bit. Like there was a thing that I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and I wanted to to take it as far as I could sort of go with this idea or this thing. And, we, and you know, I don't feel like doing the show anymore. It was fun for those three years, and I think I'm done with it live. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be other iterations of it. I mean, in that context of doing the big show there, and it was just too exhausting to do, and the thought of doing another one is just exhausting and awful, and, and I don't want to do it. So I'll, I'll do other stuff that seems exciting, but I won't do that. Um, but I wanted to s- see if, I could do a live show that I really liked. That was a good live show. That was a, a show that I thought yeah, we could take this on the road if somebody would let us and mm-hmm. if somebody would pay for it. We, and we would, we could. And it was a, it was a good solid show. And I think plugging in different, you know, different people in it and different things in it would work and and different acts and different yeah. songs. But there's a lot of moving parts. It was impressive. It was a lot. It was a drag to. It was a drag to produce all that because that. I realize that brought me absolutely no joy. It brings me no joy in life to call jazz musicians and get their schedules. That's <laughs> fucking awful. It's, it's it's the worst. One of the worst things. It's it's a Dantean task, you know, to yeah. call get schedules out of jazz guys. Jesus Christ! I think we we both grew up with the variety show being that just uh, 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 the game show had its era yeah and the talk show has its era now reality show has its era but the variety shows were fascinating yeah because you get those people that were known for uh whatever lee majors uh yeah singing yeah (laughs) yeah i mean it's pretty surreal it could be surreal you know there's some great when they show those old lawrence welk shows on television those are great that's what i wanted the brad logan thing to sort of ape a little of that just to right you know if they went to Paris and sang a French song, they would have, you know, the five singers all wearing black ascots, you know, and black berets, and then someone painted the Eiffel Tower on the side of the cafe table, and you're in France, and you'd hear the organ. There you go, you're in, uh, you're in France. And that was, it was simple little signifiers, and I like that. Yeah. And, you know, solid, lots of solid colors. Not a lot of print. Not a lot of prints on uh, Lawrence Welk show. Mm. But there's something that's it's very. It, uh, it's like. There's a hypnotic quality to that, mm-hmm. and it's but it's beautiful. Because you're not making you weren't making fun of it. No, no, no. That that's the thing. I wanted didn't want to make fun of, the performers or the music because the music had to be good. Otherwise, it was a shitty show. It's just guys. Oh, you can't play the trombone, mm. and I have to watch that. No, oh, <laughs> Jesus, that's awful. And that's the same thing, I think, with the singers and, you know, myself and the other singers that came on and, and musicians that came on. They had to be good and they had to play. And the acts the acts could be bad, but they weren't uh, 
hopelessly self-referential, hopefully. They were, and, mm-hmm. and it wasn't too meta sort of stupid performance. There was something else going on. I don't know. Yeah. It was fun to do. You know? Yeah, no, and it was entertaining beyond belief. Yeah, well, good, good, good. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. How we take a different person each time. Yeah. And they'd always oh, good. enjoy, and then nobody really wanted to go the second time. I was like, well, it's going to be the same show, so you pretty much do. Pretty much the same show. Yeah. It was 80% the same, usually, from time to time. A few... A few different things. Had Healy would come in yeah. and do something Healy differently would come in disturbing. And do weird and come in to do a new guy. He Lennon did his uh, uh-huh. Bob Newhart kind of guy that was pretty good that one time. I think he's talking it's like a Thanksgiving thing or something. <laughs> he just kept going on for 15 minutes. I've gone out to get the uh, the uh, turkey. Going to get the <laughs> going to get the turkey out there. It was just awful. It just was <laughs> super arid and, and so arid. There wasn't an ounce of moisture in that whole bit, but it was so dry. Just kept at it. It was nice. Though. Lennon and Grant were coming up with something different each time, though. Usually, yeah. They it's did intense. really great things. They did these fake Cirque du Soleil guys, and then Ben was a snake handler <laughs> one time that had a bucket of snakes and fell into a snake bucket. That's and good. he was killed. He's bitten by all the snakes. It's so stupid. It was so nice. <laughs> There's a certain amount of joy, though, like seeing that same stuff over and over. The Frank Sinatra thing It's just such a, I mean, all those performers really had to do the same jokes over and over and over and over and over. Same songs over and over and over. The same songs, yeah. I mean, you know, Lid Lawrence Welk and yeah. you guys, yeah. Yeah. And there's something in that repetition where you find that little thing that you're doing and then you can create it differently each night, but it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. So there's a there's a weird, you know, backhanded freedom in it, I think. Yeah, it was a weird it was a fun show. It was a fun show to do. But uh, but uh, there's other stuff that I want to do. So we'll yeah. the next few months we'll get some money. Well how that how that translates to you have the new guy now. That was just I just uh Brad Logan. Uh, Brad Logan, yeah. It's just Brad Logan's an international singer. Mm. A Palmdale character. He's a guy that it's a guy that I I liked it. It's a, I think the suit did it and the hair, but it's a, mm-hmm. it's a it's a I'm fascinated with that, that sort of Palmdale aesthetic, what I call it. I like those guys out there. There's a broken, yeah. there's a broken American quality to them that's not hopeless. They're living in a hopeless time in a hopeless land. But there's there's an angle to their lives, and there's a, a weird hopefulness about the future of those people. They're not resigned. There's there's mm. some there's angle they're working, and maybe the angle is a business angle, or maybe it's a love angle to get later. Maybe it's an emotional angle. I gotta work an angle so I can feel an emotional angle, so I can feel better about the world, and I cannot kill myself today. So you find these people working these angles like grifters. Mm-hmm. To not blow their brains out. That's fascinating to me. It's fascinating. <laughs> I guess everyone's doing that. You're working whatever <laughs> angle so you don't waste yourself. Yeah. To man. a point. You know, people are, you know, conning themselves and each other with different things all constantly. You know, the emotional mm-hmm. con or something. I'm, you know. It's a certain amount of people just uh, will reinvent themselves, though. Yeah. And those people will not. Yeah. Reinvent. Maybe they don't know how. Maybe they don't want to. I think they reinvent themselves by, you know. I think you got to take it small. The reinvention. You know, one one day you're not wearing those brown shoes anymore. 
Right. I reinvented myself. Are you? Do you, do you get work on a new job? No, 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 no. I, I threw, I'm wearing black shoes now. I reinvented myself. Well, that's that's pretty great, Glenn. Yeah, I feel <laughs> all right about it. There he goes, walking down the side of Avenue K. And so, for, do you think for wh- eight miles? <laughs> what do you think Brad Logan's um, former glory was then? Is a jingle singer? Just jingle, I think. Yeah, but lo- on a local level. Yeah, local level, like for Henderson's used cars or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And so he's at where where he is now after that. I think he runs an accordion store with his wife, and there's, uh, he's a he's a probably a killer of some kind. He's murdered. He's killed men. He's killed women. He does. In he's indiscriminate. Times. In rough times, sometimes you gotta, you have to kill someone. You know, have you seen that accordion store that's in Atwater? There's an accordion store. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The accordion. I've uh, gone into it. A friend it. of mine took lessons there for a while. Yeah, it's real, right? Yeah, it's a real thing. He t- well, this is ten years ago, but he took lessons there. Yeah, he went. It's still there now. Tuesday nights he go there for accordion classes. Yeah. I love that holding on. There's no yeah, irony inside no, that building. No, 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 no. It's like you know what else <laughs> is holding on pretty well are roller skating rinks. There's a good one in Bakersfield, and there's yeah. one out here, and there's some good ones in the Midwest. Glendale, you see, yeah. And around, you know, that's right in Georgia, you see one out in the middle of nowhere, like Skateland, and they're giant buildings. Like that sort yeah. of place, you know, you pass that place with that. And it always has the same font. It's this wonderful sort of Futura that's always Skate Town. It's, it's either that or a cursive, but it's one of two things. It's right. never the third. <laughs> it's never like, you know, military font. It's it's never like Old English. Not do never Helvetica. Although the Old English... Uh, Boy, that'd be nice. Old English skate town would be nice. It's usually more the the bar. Or, uh, yeah. yeah, that's true. The cursive, I like the cursive. I saw upstate New York last time I was there. Uh, two operating drive-ins. Oh and, yeah, and yeah. Not near the city. Not even near. Yeah. Like as I was around Albany, but it wasn't in Albany. Yeah. It was up in one where my dad grew up. They'd walk through their fields and the forest to walk in the back. Yeah, nice. That's the Hollywood drive-in. I had the best time. I was in that Cowboys and Aliens movie a couple years right. ago. And I was in Iowa when it premiered. Uh-huh. And so I was with my daughter. And we went to, my brother and his family was there, my sister and her family. And and we went to an Indian powwow in Tama, Toledo, Iowa. In Tama, Iowa, they have the Meskwaki Sac Fox tribe there. They have an Indian casino and they have a big powwow every year. So we... Right. We stopped and watched the powwow like five to seven and went, oh, shit, we got to go see that Cowboys and Aliens. That was in Newton at the drive-in. <laughs> so we got in a car and we got there right just, we had just enough time to stop the car uh-huh. and go into the old time. We built in 1960 main area to get up with those really super low ceilings. You know, they're like right. six and a half foot high ceilings in there. And you got to kind of duck down and order your gum and popcorn and stuff. Right. And I got lawn chairs and shit and got out and... It was just the greatest day. So we were sitting in a drive in Newton, Iowa, full moon above the screen, mm. watching Cowboys and Aliens with your family. It was crazy. And there were cornfields on three sides, and then a oh, road on the beautiful. other. And then the moon. It was the most gorgeous little day. Did you clap for the, your own scenes? Sure, in sure. Area? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. Just, hey, there he is. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> no. um, before... I forget. No, you brought up. Uh, you researched Clyde. Yeah. And Clyde pretty, Sukeforth. pretty. Not that I know the ins and outs of him, but I read a little bit when I was reading about you. One of those fascinating journeymen 
much like a character actor through baseball. Sure. First off, alive from 1901 to 2000. Yeah. What kind of life yeah. did this guy have? He had like a 50-year career in baseball. He started out as a catcher, and he was really good. And Branch Rickey was a catcher as well, the guy that you know won the owners of Brooklyn Dodgers. Mm. And uh, Clyde was working for him, and Clyde was at the at the apex of three giant things in in baseball. One bigger than the other two, but but still. Um, but he was a journeyman catcher. Got shot hunting by his friend. Got a, took a pellet in the eye. And that messed his career up. His wife had their first and only child. She dies two weeks after delivery. Um, He remarries again years later, but tells his new wife, I want to be buried next to my first wife. She says, okay. (laughs) Wow. This is a man of unbelievable, sort of wonderful passion. He, uh, so I I went to Walderboro, Maine, and I, I, uh, I, uh, I didn't know what to do. I I didn't know anything. So I go there and I show up at the library. Yeah. I went to the library and I said, hey, I'm researching Clyde. Oh, Clyde. You know, Clyde. Yeah, I'm researching Clyde. So the new picture they're doing about Jack. Oh, they're doing a picture. Yeah, Jackie Robinson picture. Uh, Brian Helglund's doing it. And and, uh, really great. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, you should go talk to Billy. Who's Billy? He's a fire chief. You know, what you want to do is drive down there. He used to coach with Clyde. He coached with Clyde? Yeah, yeah, he coached the little, you know, the, the Papa Warner with Clyde, go down and talk to him. All right. So I went and talked, found the fire chief, and we chatted, and he's about my age, a little younger maybe. Mm-hmm. And he took me around to see Clyde's house and, and talked to his uh, neighbor down the street from Clyde who was, uh, had, you know, shrimp, uh, or not shrimp, but uh, lobster traps in his front yard. He was a you know, lobster man, and, and then talked to his neighbor across the street who was a World War II vet that lost his leg in the Pacific Theater that told the story about Clyde who had a, up in a tree cutting down some branches. Clyde, you be careful because that chainsaw, uh, clutch is busted. So the clutch was busted in the chainsaw. The chain kept running the whole time. Instead of, you know, when you, when you, right. unless you engage it, it's just a motor going. And then when you right. engage it, then the chain goes. The fucking chain was going the whole time. So Clyde's up in the tree. And, of course, he falls out of the tree. The chainsaw goes, wow, 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 wow. Misses his knee when he's like 60 or something. Oh, just could have fucking killed him. Oh, just about got me there. Ah, oh, laugh, laugh, laugh. What a beautiful guy. So he was, he was, he was, uh, he was a player and he was really good. He was a good player and, and a guy who was writing a book on him, I bet, in Washington, Maine, which is a really small town, 800 people, a thousand something. I met him just. I went to the library there, and I said, oh, you Clyde too? And I said, you should talk to, I forget the guy's name, you should talk to Gavin. He's right out there. Oh, hey, he was just leaving. I chased him down, and we talked, and he gave me a big pamphlet he was working on with a bunch of stuff from uh, um, the Hall of Fame at Cooperstown, right. you know, a bunch of stuff that he got. And, you know, there were there were cartoons in the whatever Washington, Maine paper, or in New York there were, you know, uh, cartoons of the kid from, a kid from Winnenocket can really sock it. Yeah, right. And it was a photo or a drawing of Clyde, like a Ripley's Believe It or Not style old black line photo of Clyde swinging and his average, and he was good. Then he got shot, and his uh, his numbers went down, but that's when he started coaching, and he was a third-base coach, and he was also a scout for the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he was the only other guy in the room when, when Branch Rickey said, you know, I want to I wanna integrate baseball. And the wow. reason why they know anything about that is because of Clyde, because he was the one who told the story about what happened. And then when they, he went, that's so Clyde went down to 
go find Jackie when he was playing with the Kansas City Monarchs and bring him to New York. And he'd hurt his hand and mm-hmm. hurt his arm. And he said, good, I, you know, I got a few days, I can go up there. So Clyde rode on a train from Chicago to New York mm-hmm. with Jackie Robinson and then went to Brooklyn. And they met uh, Branch Rickey and, you know, Clyde generally a guy in the room there. But he was, you know, he was the third base coach and he was also a scout and he was sort of the mentor to Jackie. And Jackie, you know, died young in his 50s of diabetes and a pretty rough life. And just, Mm -hmm. you know, having to deal with all that, that hate, the stress of the fucking hate. And his wife is still around. Rachel, she is fantastic. Visited the set. She's just a cut. She's a great lady. Well, she's gorgeous. It's so fantastic and, uh-huh. and sharp and spry. She's really wonderful. It was we were so lucky to get her on set one day. And, but cool. uh, so he was he was there when Jackie was in, and then he was the guy who was mm-hmm. warming up in what was it fifty one? You know the famous Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. He was warming up Ralph Branca and Carl Erskine because he was an old catcher, and he was probably in his fifties then. Because during the movie, he was 47 years old. He's 5'10", 47 years old, and 155 pounds. And Mm -hmm. I'm 47, 5'10", and about 160. Crazy. The same, exact same size as that dude. Right. This is the size of a major league ball player in the 30s. Me. That's You're looking shocking. At this is a badass <laughs> ball player who can hit the ball, too. Right, right. This, I'm a and pro- play a long time. Professional athlete size. Do you understand me? <laughs> so he was warming up, and he said, Carl Erskine doesn't have his curve today. His curve is off, so put in Ralph Branca. And uh, it was Clyde's recommendation, put in Branca. So he puts in Branca, and the coach put in Branca. They put in Branca, and the world... Uh, Home run. Bobby Thompson hits a home run, and it's the Giants win the pennant. Yeah. They fired Ralph, or they fired Clyde after that. They, they fired him because of that. They fired him because of it. They fired him because of it because somebody's heads had to roll. So they get rid of Clyde, yeah. and there was a big uproar in the New York press. Don't fire Clyde. He's a great guy, and he was a soft-spoken good. Everybody loved this man. He was, and he was a, by all accounts, just a fantastic human being. Just great. Yeah. Every not there wasn't there was nary a bad word said about this dude by anyone and anything that I've read mm. in any anybody I talked to they just went oh god the sweetest guy in the world oh god he was a beloved man so he goes so the, the New York press said well, you, you know get rid of Clyde and there was an uproar people said no don't blame him get him back so they tried to rehire him back and he went no thanks I'm mm. gonna go join Bran- uh, go join Branch in who'd gone to Pittsburgh he was at Pittsburgh now uh. with the Pirates so he was scouting for Pittsburgh, and apparently the farm system at that time, there's some deal if, you're, if you were, you could claim a player who was with a different team or something. So I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but if you were right. in the New York, you know, the, the Yankee farm system, right. and somebody from the Pirates farm system or somebody from their scouting group saw a Yankee guy, you could claim them somehow and take oh, them right. away from the Yankees, whatever it was. So right. it was in your best interest to keep some players under wraps until they signed a thing or did a thing. So mm. there was one player that, the, that uh, I think it was New York maybe, was keeping under wraps. Mm-hmm. And, and Clyde, who was a really smart baseball guy, had heard about this dude, and he went, I gotta go see this guy. He went out to see him, they wouldn't let him hit. He couldn't see him hit. And he's waiting and waiting, he went, saw a few games, and he finally sees the guy throw one ball in from the outfield. He said, son of a bitch, get him. Called up Branch and said, get this guy now. After seeing him throw a baseball from the outfield, and it was Roberto Clemente. Wow. So he saw him throw one ball and went, oh, That's shit. Absurd. 
That is absurd. That's a dude who uh, he so, yeah, had, so a guy he who has three thousand hits and he didn't even see him hit. He said, "Nope, get him." Didn't see him hit. Throw the ball. Threw the ball once. Oh, son of a bitch! Go get him! Gotta get him! So he was. So yeah. he was a beautiful, sweet guy that was yeah. in the. You know, and, and he did not. And he actually is the manager of record, because mm-hmm. uh, DeRocher was booted out of baseball for morals. Oh, he was. Sure. He was banging. What was her name? I was thinking Elaine. It's not Elaine. I think May. Somebody May, an actress in Los Angeles. He was. She was married. I think he was married. There was some incident when he. DeRosha was such a cad. Chris Maloney plays him, and he's fantastic. Oh, okay. And uh, but anyway, so so they went down to Mexico, and they both got quickie divorces that weren't real. Right. And then they came back to the States, and they get married. So now they're both bigamous. He's still trying to manage the Brooklyn Dodgers. It's the winter of 47. Jackie's was playing with the Dodgers Toronto team uh-huh. for the last year. Clyde was up there going back and forth. So they get – so DeRocher's now the coach. They go to spring training. Mm-hmm. There's All this shit is coming down. And then there's photos of DeRocher's with no, uh, DeRocher with no one gangsters in the clubhouse in the dugout. There's whatever uh-huh. New York gangster guy. Then the thing that killed him, though, was uh, – that there were people, Branch Rickey loved DeRocher, and there were other, other, other interests in the Dodgers organization, mainly the, the fucking O'Malley's, right. that wanted DeRocher out because they didn't like his morals. And there was a big group of Brooklyn Dodger Catholic kids, and they called them like the mm-hmm. Dodger kids or something like that, but it was a Catholic organization that O'Malley loved. And there was maybe 3,000 kids who were all signed up for this, and you know, that's the way to ensure the prosperity of the Dodgers for the future is the kids, and and that hit, and, and, and O'Malley didn't like uh, uh, Ricky. They were always at odds. Right. So it was, uh, it was O'Malley who said, uh, you know, we got to get rid of DeRocher, and appealed to everybody else, and they had to get rid of DeRocher. So they get rid of DeRocher, and they go, Clyde, you're going to manage first game of the year. You're going to be the manager. Clyde went, what the? F- oh, fuck. No. Right. So he managed, Clyde managed, I think, the first two games of the year. And then uh, they got someone else. Uh, that's crazy. So he was a minute because he did not want the limelight. He didn't want that. Because there's the uh, stuff online. I'm turning down it. Turning down manager gigs more than once. Yeah, yeah. I think he managed a little bit with the Pirates too. Yeah. Um, but he managed little, you know, little times here and there, and minor league teams. He was manager of stuff. But mm-hmm. he 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 liked being a baseball man. Mm-hmm. If he was playing and managing and scouting, he wanted to be around the game. And when he retired to Walterboro. Mm-hmm. He would go to all these Pop Warner games, and the story is that they would send him, you know, like in the mail, they would send him a dozen balls to sign, you know, for a trade show or whatever. Never asked for a dime, but said wow. if you send me a dozen to sign, you got to give a dozen to the kids. Oh, cool. So this guy Billy was telling me that well, you know, and Clyde would go there at night in his seventies and eighties, yeah. and he would go and he put the the new baseballs for the kids in the little cubby holes at the field, you know, for the mm-hmm. high school kids and the Pop Warner kids and stuff. Right. And. So they come out and they grab him in the morning and they play with him. We got new right. balls from Clyde. It's so sweet. It's so great. And, you know, he would go over to Clyde's house and there'd be stacks of bats. And Clyde, oh, yeah, I got to get those signed for the show. And Phil had never asked for a dime. Right. And now and again, they get new bats and stuff. And one day, he, the guy goes out there and there are these balls and they're playing catch with the balls. And there's these scuff marks on them. And the guy, what's that? Well, they're usually new balls. He looks at them. Oh, they're not scuff marks. 
Jesus Christ, they're autographs. Roger Maris, <laughs> Reggie Jackson. Holy so, shit. Gee, so Clyde put the wrong balls in, and they were all autographed worth hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars of baseball. Wow. And he goes, Clyde, I think you uh, – he goes to Clyde, Clyde, I think you put the wrong balls in a cubby holes. And he went, ah, the kids ain't going to mind. <laughs> wow. So they ended up playing with the uh, the super autographed balls. That's great. Yeah. That's, that's like kind of – the kind of guy he was. Ah, the kids ain't gonna mind. You, you, you can't play with these baseballs either. With ah, kids ain't gonna mind. Baseball's perfect. Hitting and catching. Yeah. yeah. But it's a sweet guy, and it was a real. Yeah. And so, and it's like, so it's an important part of the film, but it's probably still character acting. Yeah, I mean, he was yeah. a guy from Maine, and he didn't. Yeah. You know, there's one interview with him that you can find online. And he oh, really? He was 88 or something, but. You know, when he was old or 80, 80 years old or something. Yeah. But, um, you know, I thought he probably in the 30s would have had, in the 40s would have had more of an accent, a slight, probably a little bit more of a slight than a slight main accent. You know, you could yeah. sort of lose your accent when you get older. You didn't have much of an accent when you get older. Right. But there was a bit of a rhythm that he had that you could hear even in the, when he was older. Yeah. And there was a bit of that there. So, uh I don't know. Brian liked it. I said, "Yeah, I think it'll work." And I, you know, took it. We'll see. Maybe it sounds clowny, but I don't think so. I, I think it was okay. <coughs> it's coming out soon. Or no? April. What is it? Twenty third, seventh. April twenty third. Jackie Robinson Day. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Twenty third, twenty first. I think it's coming out then. Whatever day Jackie Robinson Day is, I think they're trying to make it a national law, national day, which would be great. Perfect. And then, then in it, Jimmy Breslin wrote this fantastic little book uh, mm -hmm. before he died about Branch Rickey. And it's really interesting that Branch Rickey, you know, they said, could Obama have happened without Jackie Robinson? Well, right. you wonder. I mean, it might have come up, might not have, but Branch Rickey almost, he started and almost stopped it at the same time. Because in the 60s, so he did all that with Jackie Robinson, and, and, mm -hmm. and but he was also a Republican. Mm. And in the 60s, Joe Kennedy wanted to sponsor, wanted the government to sponsor this group of Africans, 200 African men, to come to the United States to study or something like that. And it was Breslin that, that found this out, <laughs> and, or that made the connection, I think. And, uh, no, 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 it, it was, uh, yeah, Joe Kennedy wanted the, the government right. to pay for the government. Branch Rickey went, no, because he hated Joe Kennedy, because he's Republican. Joe Kennedy was a, you know, a philandering lefty cocksucker. Uh, <laughs> So he said no, and he opposed him, and they made a big deal about it. And Joe Kennedy said, well, all right. Instead of letting him have his way, like crushing it, he went, all right, I'll pay for it myself. Fuck it. So he paid for them all to come over himself, and one of the guys that came over was Obama's father. Come on. So Branch Rickey paved the way for and almost stopped <laughs> Obama from being. Interesting, right? That's fascinating. Oh, Branch Rickey was right there. That's yeah. real cornerstone of our century yeah <laughs> pretty crazy it is yeah awesome uh, looking forward to more brad logan stuff that's yeah. coming on funny or die yeah right? funny okay. funny die friday and then brad logan it'll be on there and we'll stick it around you know you'll see it awesome. oh the streets will be littered with that's gonna get <laughs> i tell you that's gonna get two three hundred views easy <laughs> on funny or die hundred that's what bobcat's favorite line in Hundreds of people are going to see yeah. this. Tens of tens of people will go see <laughs> the hundreds. Yeah, it could be hundreds. 
I think it could be 240, 250. Look, <laughs> this is not my job to predict, but it's got to be at least 200. They're going to see this. Awesome. And then I look forward to seeing you <coughs> in uh, 42. 42. Like in the new uh, I couldn't remember the number, which, of course, is the only the only number that's retired by every single baseball team. <laughs> yeah, dig that. Yeah. Oh, and the Hall of Center you're into? Yeah. Awesome. And they don't know why the 42... They don't know why his number was 42. Oh, really? Yeah. Although the Helgland has a theory. It's a pretty good theory. Uh-huh. That it was 42 years since the year that Branch Rickey had dealt with, uh, there was an incident in Branch's past where when he was a player mm-hmm. and there was a black kid on their team and they wouldn't allow the black kid up to the room. Oh. And the kid was crying. And then Branch Rickey made a big stink and said, get him up to the fucking room. He'll sleep on a cot in my room. I'll be responsible. Go fuck yourself. And he came up and he stayed in Branch's room and he was crying. And he said, it's my skin. He was rubbing his hands. He went, it's my skin. I just can't rub off this color. Mm. And that made a big impression on Branch Rickey. And and Hmm. I think Brian said it was 42 years from the year of that event to Jackie Robinson. But no one knows why 42. It's a weird number to give a dude. Yeah. 42 was a weird number. Yeah. I like the theory. It's intense. Not bad. Mm-hmm. Not bad. That's the only thing you come up with. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, delightful. Delightful. Yeah. Any, any other voice work coming up? Nah, just regular horse shit. You okay. know, just, just more failure at the, uh, <laughs> the audition microphones. Just look for me in a lot of failed, failed shit. <laughs> Listen for you. Listen for me in a lot of failed shit, boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. L- Looking forward to it. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Passed out in the elevator. I woke some time later getting cranked off by Jim from the loading dock. Because this is your night. Oh, brother, you worked hard, hard all goddamn year. It's your right, baby, to drink up your Christmas cheer.